Good morning. It is wonderful to be together, enjoying this cool weather this morning. Um, I would like for you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. That's where we are going to spend the, the, well, all of our time this morning um, and really wrestle with this text. This has been a challenging one for me, but I think that it will be a, a challenging one for you, but I am excited to study it together. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. When I was in college, I had a chance to go on an extended mission trip over the summer to Guatemala, and we worked with an organization called Health Talents International. It's actually a, a really neat organization. They are looking for some help, especially if you're in the medical profession. There's a, a little blurb in our bulletin. I believe it's still there. You could contact Dave Stanley if that's a skill set that you have. They really do a really neat work down there, and I, I got to spend six weeks seeing it firsthand. The first little bit of our trip was spent in language school where I tried in futility to learn Spanish, and I still can't speak any of it. Um, but then after that, we went and we actually lived with some of the families and worked in the communities where the, um, where the, the health care was happening. It was a fascinating experience. The last half of the trip, I got to spend up in a mountainous region of Guatemala where it was very cool. Um, the weather was beautiful. But the first section, I got to live with a family who lived down in the rainforesty area where it was hot and humid. And I will never forget the first night that I tried to sleep in that bed with no air conditioning and just in a puddle of sweat the whole evening. Have you ever tried to sleep when you're hot? Man, it is brutal. Okay, so I got a plan together. The next day, I had found a fan in the house, and so I brought the fan into the room and plugged it in, and as I was falling asleep, I turned that fan on. And I was still hot, but I slept a lot better. So I woke up the next morning feeling pretty rested, and as I came into the, the kitchen area where everyone was getting ready for breakfast, I'm not sure what got said to me, but it was not very nice. They were very upset with me that I had left a fan on for the entire evening. And the best I could tell in my broken Spanish was that they were afraid that I was going to make everyone in the house sick by having this fan on. And I tried to explain, well, no. I've slept with a fan on for 22 years. It's not like, it doesn't make you sick, but they were having none of it. Having a fan on made you sick, and I was not allowed to use that. So for the rest of the two weeks, I slept sweating. It was what it was, and I survived to tell the story, so I suppose that's a, not that big of a problem to have. But here's the bottom line. That, that opinion that they held wasn't rooted in reality at all. We have all found ourselves in situations where we believed something very strongly that turned out to not be true. In fact, as you look over the course of humanity, you see that we have progressed in a lot of ways. There's been a lot of beliefs over the years that have been replaced with a better scientific understanding. So the world of medicine is, has, uh, has been opened up by germ theory that helped us understand how people actually got sick. It's way more productive to wash your hands than just to avoid bad smells. And that was, a, that was a, a big leap ahead for all of us. But it's happened in a lot of areas of knowledge as well. For instance, more recently in the religious world, we see that there have been some theological things that we've uncovered and learned to discern that have helped us move in a really positive direction. It wasn't that long ago when the Bible was used to defend the terrible practice of slavery. And 
Yet, as we've grown to understand and see more clearly the picture that's presented, we see that that was a misuse of Scripture, and it shouldn't be so at all. As time marches on, so does human understanding and knowledge. This week's passage is challenging because it deals with a matter of opinion that was viewed as a matter of truth. And I think it's all but impossible to know when you're entrenched in the middle of this. I want to start by reading the text. It's a lengthy reading, Romans chapter 14, and we're going to read verses 1 through 19. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, you, why, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. In my opinion, there are kind of three major blocks to this text. You could split it up a lot of different ways. There's an enormous amount here that we can't cover all of it. But I believe verses 1 through 9 clearly lay out for us the specifics of the situation that Paul was dealing here in the Roman church. And, and it introduces these kind of guiding principles that he's going to use to attack this, this difficult situation they find themselves in. Then in verses 10 through 12, we see these heavenly realities presented that are to frame the entire discussion. So that's an important portion of the text. And then in verses 13 through 20, I believe he, he reiterates and lays out very clearly how these heavenly realities intersect with the principles and drive this, might I call it abnormal behavior that Christians hold? I think I could call it that. 
So I think we need to walk through each of these, and we need to start by wrapping our minds around the immediate application. What exactly is happening in this text in this time? We really see the answer to that in verses 2 and 5. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So the first one is an issue of dietary rules. And the second one is an issue of days, probably the Sabbath day, maybe Jewish festivals. In verse 5, it says one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, you have to imagine what this landscape would have looked like at the beginning of Christianity, because really what they were doing was trying to blend two very different cultures, religious cultures, people with very different background together as one. And so you have these Jewish Christians who grew up under the Old Testament law with dietary restrictions and all of these special days now being integrated with this community of Gentile Christians who didn't grow up experiencing any of that. And Paul walks up to the table and he says, okay, we've got to deal with this major difference. In verse 1, he lays out very clearly that this is a quarrel over an opinion. For the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So you have these two groups, strongly held beliefs, these opinions that we might say, and they are struggling to get along. Now it's interesting because we also see clearly in the text that they both had similar motivation. And I think that's important for us to note. In verses 6 through 8, um, we see that, that despite their difference in belief about how this was supposed to happen, they shared the common goal of wanting to give honor and thanks to God. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. But the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And I think he summarizes it up well with this collective attitude that they did bring to the table in verse 8. He says, we are the Lord's. So you have these two very different groups of people who loved God and wanted to honor him and thank him, but they disagreed on exactly how that was supposed to happen. So that moves us into the principles that he lays out. What are the principles for dealing with this very difficult situation? This difficult situation of opinions that people have. Aren't y'all glad we don't have opinions today? Verses 3 through 4, I think, lay out the first guiding principle. There's quite a few here. We're going to walk through them one at a time. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. So the first thing as we approach this very difficult situation is Paul says you need to take a step back. Judgment is not where we start. In fact, he moves on in verses 5 through 6. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, Paul is saying it's important for you to act in accordance with your convictions. But then he also challenges them to recognize and respect the convictions of others. We move into verse 13, therefore, or verse, verse 13, which is our first therefore statement, knowing that we are dealing with loaded matters of opinion amongst devout servants of God, who are all collectively seeking to honor him. 
Now he lays out another huge idea in verses 10 through 12. And this is the reality that our only and ultimate accountability is towards God and not one another. Verses 10 through 12, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to who? Me. And every tongue shall confess to who? God. So then, Paul says, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So God is going to be the ultimate judge here. And these people that they are in a disagreement with, at the end of the day, are going to answer directly to the master whom they are serving. Now, Paul has introduced this idea of opinion. He showed these two different groups. He showed their motivation. He's introduced this idea of God judging. But then in verse 14, he throws something else at us. Something that I think is important. In verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Now, Paul at the beginning had said, okay, this is a matter of opinion. But here in verse 14, he actually makes a bold statement affirming that there is a right and a wrong in this situation. Paul says, here is the reality. Here's what I've studied. Here's what's been delivered to me. These Gentile Christians are right that's the right way to land there is truth in this matter if the gentiles had been wrong in what they ate you can rest assured that paul would have corrected them he corrects other people when they are wrong in other situations but they weren't they were right the problem is is over here was these jewish christians who were technically wrong And here's where it starts to get really challenging for us. Because Paul doesn't correct them. It seems that just because something is true doesn't mean it matters. Hmm. Actually, what matters more, according to this text, is loving your brother and their conscience. And I think that's a really hard pill for us to swallow. Verses 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. In other words, Paul is stepping up and saying, hey, these other people around you are important. The way that you are impacting these people and their walk with God That's important. And in this particular case, it was more important than being right. You see, people are always more important than these peripheral things, things that don't matter. And I think one of the challenges for us as Christians is working to discern the difference between the things that matter and the things that don't. And I think that's a really difficult thing, but in the midst of that, we can be assured of this one overarching principle, and that shows up in Romans 14, 19. And I think that it, that it, that it summarizes this entire passage well when he says, So then, or therefore, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. That is first and foremost the attitude to which we are to take in these matters of disagreement and discernment, that of peace and mutual upbuilding. And you'll note that it is a pursuit. I remember back when I was in high school, I did a little bit of track running. I wasn't very good at it. 
I think maybe the coaches thought I was faster than I really was, and they wanted to test and really see, okay, what does Blake have? What, what, what can he turn on in a moment of distress? So you know what they did? They somehow coordinated in one of our track meets to make me run against this state-level sprinter from Cisco who happened to be a girl. And I have never ran so fast in my entire life. Now, now, I still really wasn't that fast, and I think they realized in that moment that, okay, Blake's been giving it all that he's got. I mean, this is, he's, he's got his limits. Now, I will say I didn't lose, okay, but they started her on the outside lane where she was way ahead, and I have never pursued so, so readily in my entire life. That was a pursuit, and that's a picture that Paul paints here. He says, this is what you pursue. This is what you run after, peace and mutual upbuilding, Now, there's a lot of room in this command for us to wiggle. There's room for learning and debating. There's even room for disagreeing. But Paul says, more important than all that is the pursuit of peace and upbuilding. As God's people, that is a top priority. After all, who are you to judge? They'll answer to God. So as I take a step back and I look at these realities and this message that Paul delivered, this difficult message that Paul delivered to this group of believers, I can't help but wonder what the modern day applications are and how far they go. Now some of you may have done some remodeling. If you have, you'll be familiar with what this is. This is from Sherwin-Williams, this particular one, but you can get them at most paint stores. This is a color wheel. And Here's what this means if you see this come out, guys. This means you're still going to paint the house the color that y'all picked in the first five or ten minutes, but it's going to take two weeks to figure it out. (laughs) And two weeks later, you should keep your mouth shut and just paint it that color that you started with. Okay? That's what this means. This is the bane of my existence. When the color wheel comes out, it's going to be a bad day. Now, I, I, I look at this, and I kind of, and I kind of thumb through, and, and the reality is I see a lot of of applications to us here. I look out amongst all of us and I see that we're all different. Not, not a one of us are like, and, and not just in our physical features, and the things that we believe and the way that we process and understand truth. Now, we have collected ourselves in a, in a group of people who all kind of fit on the same spectrum. We fit together pretty well, and, and we've self-selected for that. And so in this room, the majority of us agree on most things. We don't look exactly alike, but most of the big issues and maybe even some of the matters of opinion, things that we might view as less important, we are pretty similar on. But the truth is, I could, I could take this color wheel and I could go both directions. I could fan a few cards over, and we might still be within the churches of Christ, Amongst those who believe these big picture ideas the same as us, we agree on core issues like baptism for salvation of sins, the nature of the Trinity. And and yet we we go a little bit one direction and we find a whole other subset of believers who maybe think that it's wrong for us to have paid ministers and paid staff or struggle with the idea of church funds being used on a kitchen, or maybe the idea of us having a youth minister and a youth ministry and our approach towards that, or maybe struggle with the idea that we have Bible class or serve communion from multiple cups. Now, 
I feel like we're pretty middle of the road. And, and I'm sure everyone in their unique situation feels that way. But from their perspective, we're raging liberals. And I, and I think that we have to, to recognize that. Now, now, we could go to the other side and we could skew a few cards over this way and find within those who would consider themselves churches of Christ and agree still on core issues to find either another subset of things that make us uncomfortable and where we would view them maybe as raging liberals. And so we would look the other direction and we would see praise teams or instrumental music or differing opinions about women and their role and how they should serve. And we might see women serving communion or leading prayers or even being placed into leadership roles. I haven't made you uncomfortable enough yet so we'll uh, move a little bit further down the color wheel okay and and we'll step outside of the churches of Christ and say okay there's some some other people in this in this will it's it's maybe a long way from us some other people who think very differently about certain things they still have a high view of scripture they believe in the same God they believe in the same Jesus that we do but they disagree with us on the mechanics of salvation they view maybe baptism as an outward sign of an inward change. They would place it different on the, on the timeline of salvation and where it occurs. And then we could skew maybe even further on the wheel, further off to the side, and we could find those who would subscribe to the doctrine of, of Calvinism. And they believe something totally different about how God and how he interacts with the world. And they would remove much of your personal responsibility from the idea of salvation itself and say it's God's elect who are saved. And then I could take each of those groups and I, could, and I could fan out the color wheel along the spectrum where they sit and I could find that the same number of disagreements and debates occur internally within each of those denominations and way of viewing things that we have within our own faith tradition and the way that we view things. And I look at this and I, I, and I look at the reality around us and, and honestly, I, what do we do? What do we do? Because here's the deal. Everyone on this will thinks that they're right. So how do we know that we're the ones who are right? I mean, I think the easy answer to that is with, with Scripture. But it's not so simple. Scripture is our guide but we still see considerable differences among those who believe in the, the supreme authority of Scripture. In fact, everyone that I just listed, far ends of the spectrum, believe that what they are doing is scriptural, and not a one of them is purposefully doing something wrong. Each of them desires to honor God and to bring glory to Him and believes they are doing it in the best way possible. So where are we in light of Romans 14? Are we the stronger or the weaker brother? Do we actually have the truth or we just think we have the truth? How do we discern what is opinion and what matters and what doesn't? Y'all, I would love to live in a black and white world, but we don't. I would love for scripture to present a black and white reality, but it does not there are only a relatively small handful of things that are black and white in Scripture. And while I wish God had delivered it to us differently, for some reason he did not. 
and I don't fully understand that. And, and I believe that those of you who might claim that it is black and white are either young and you haven't seen fully the complexities of life, or you have backed yourself into a corner of, of dogmatism that doesn't allow you to think or, or see others. I, I think we are still brothers in Christ, and I think we can disagree even on that, and it will be my goal in regard to that to promote peace and upbuilding, but I think that I have to say, as Paul did, you can feel strongly that way, but we have to stop passing judgment. Judgment is to be left to God. Church, I think we've been pretty arrogant in the past, and this passage challenges me to reconsider our attitude and our approach to those who are different than us. It would seem that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are central and undebatable claims. Paul is clear about God and sin and salvation in Christ. Paul is pointed in, in his um, admonitions towards righteous living and Christian behavior. In fact, we've spent the last three weeks talking about our sanctification and our holiness and what the process of that is supposed to look like. Those are important things for us to pursue and talk about. Yet, then I see Paul gets to this this doctrinal issue that I feel like should be pretty important. I mean, he's talking about the Old Testament um, being superseded by the New Testament, the replacement of this new covenant. This is an issue that I would fight over if someone wanted to bring it to this church. And I would say, no, 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 we're not acting this way. And Paul says, well, hold on. There's a right and a wrong, but you need to check yourself just a little bit. Because just because it's true doesn't mean it matters. Are there places where we can disagree but still live in peace with mutual upbuilding? I want to read verses 10 through 13 to you. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. This, this right here should always be our first reaction, and it requires humility and, and connection and relationship. We need to be people who can give space for others to answer for themselves in front of God. It appears based on this passage that God is most concerned with the heart of men, something that we certainly don't have access to. Now, he does in the passage give us a hint about things that we should stand for in verse 17, we see it. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So those are important things. Those seem to be things that Paul thought were worth standing for. Righteousness. In other words, us pursuing a life that is good, living in a way that reflects who we are. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, he says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a sampling. We get different lists in different places. I mean, we could certainly, we certainly understand what unrighteous behavior is. Paul says righteous behavior matters. We need to press ourselves towards righteousness. 
We need to press ourselves towards peace. We need to be a people who aren't spending our time fighting with one another and fighting with others. Christians are to be peaceful people. That's one of the the clothing articles that we wear. And finally, Christians are to be joyful. This is exciting. This is a pleasant, fulfilling, enjoyable, pleasurable, satisfying place to live life. And while I certainly understand that there is a wider council of Scripture to to look at, and there are a lot of other directives out there, notably absent in this passage are many things. Notably absent a directive about the mechanics of how we worship or discussion about church structure or leadership or the intricacies of salvation and what happens in the background. Now, Now, don't get me wrong. I think we can determine biblically what is right in each of these areas. I have very strong views on what the Bible teaches about this. I don't think this passage alone is enough for us to dismiss these things as unimportant. That is not what I'm saying. But I do have enough awareness and humility to recognize that there are others with an equally high view of Scripture who have read the book and come to a different conclusion. And in those cases, I have to admit in reading this passage that perhaps we need to leave the judgment to God and work on building the kingdom in ways that are peaceful and mutually upbuilding. We can teach and take a stand and promote our understanding of Scripture. But we can't cross the line of condemning those who would seek to honor God, yet choose to do it because of their strong convictions on what they've studied in a manner that is different than what we think is right. Church, I believe we have to be careful and guarded to avoid dogmatism of any flavor, to avoid an arrogant or stubborn assertion of our opinions or beliefs. And that doesn't matter which side of the color wheel you land on. In verse 13, he says, there's not going to be judgment and there's not going to be stumbling blocks put out. In other words, I don't care which side of this issue you lean on, the proper approach is for you to look at others with an attitude of humility and recognize, as verse 15 said, if your brother's grieved, well, then I'm not going to do that. I'm going to walk in love because I understand that Christ died for this brother just like he died for me. And that's what this is supposed to look like. And when it does, we land where we see in verse 19, this final therefore, so then, therefore, let us pursue, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. In light of the kingdom of God being righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in light of others who might believe differently than us but serve in, a different, in this fashion wholeheartedly, Paul would say, pursue peace. And mutual upbuilding. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what the world would look like if we could stop fighting over religion? Can you imagine the amount of effort that could be redirected towards more productive things? Maybe instead of fighting, we could grow and mature in our understanding. Can you imagine if we could do a better job of discerning the things that matter versus the things that don't? I believe if we can get this one right, we can bring more to Christ and the world will be a better place.
Perhaps as an outsider, if you are an outsider, you've been a little turned off by the confusion and infighting among churches. And I hope today has made clear that while we are broken in this, that certainly isn't how it is supposed to be. And we are continually working to turn things over to God. We don't always hit the mark, but we're trying. We aren't perfect, but we are covered by Christ, and he is moving us, I believe, each day towards something beautiful, towards righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Would you come serve with us? Perhaps you aren't a Christian. We would love to baptize you today so that you could be buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Begin your eternal walk with him. Perhaps you have drifted and are in need of restoration. Perhaps you would like to study or perhaps you simply need prayers and support. Whatever your need might be, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.